Over the weekend, my wife and I and our children went to St. Louis to celebrate my great grand, well, my wife's great grandmother's 100th birthday. Yeah, no, give it up for grandma. I realized at this birthday party that I could live to whatever the age I will live to and never again attend one of these parties. Like, how many people have been to a 100-year-old birthday party? See what I'm saying? It's not very often. Who's been to two of them? Wow. Well, there's a few. It was a pretty cool event. Uh, she's the big, she's the biggest Cardinals fan I know, and we actually uh, had the Cardinals Redbird show up. So, go Cards! I know this is Cub territory, so let me be careful with that. But I am from Seattle, so I'm a Mariners fan, so it doesn't really matter. Which leads me to the next part of the story. As we're driving to St. Louis, we listen to all kinds of stuff on the radio. Someone made a comment that reminded me of a Pearl Jam song, which would be, a, if you're familiar with Pearl Jam, if I'm 41 years old, and don't think of me less right now by my, this admission, because you'll think of me less in a moment. Let this one kind of stand, but uh, I played a Pearl Jam song, and my son in the back goes, is this a mix of rock and country? <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. My wife looked at me, and she pointed her finger, and she laughed. She's like, you listen to a mix of rock and country. I'm like, no. It's, so I had to have this conversation about grunge music in Seattle. And Anyway, I wish that was the hardest thing to admit about this car trip. Car trips are great for this kind of stuff. There's things that I've forgotten that I can't tell you about. But uh, on the way home last night, see, when you come from central time zone to eastern time zone, you, you lose an hour. So the four-hour ride becomes a five-hour ride. And Saturday nights, I like to be in bed at a decent hour because this is a long day. And I, I wake up before my 5 a.m. alarm clock usually because God loves my wife. You know, he doesn't want the alarm to go off for her. So I just wanted to get out of there. Like, I love this family. I'm so blessed to, to have married into Heather's family. She's not even here. I don't even know why I'm saying this. My mother-in-law is not here either. But I really am. Don't tell them I said this. I, I really am, but I still couldn't wait to get home. So we get in the car, and I'm racing. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I am great with directions. Like, I'm really, really good. I could go somewhere once and, and know how to get back. I'm, I'm really good with directions. I was a kid in the backseat of my parents' car with the Atlas, who just studied it. This is before we all had devices for our children. I had an Atlas. I brought an Atlas for my kids on one car trip to try to make them into mini-me's. It didn't work as well. <laughs> but I'm really good with... If, if I could have majored in directions in college, I would have. Not geography, which I'm okay at, but directions, sense of direction. Really, really good. So I'm, I'm cruising out of St. Louis. I've done it 100 million times since I married into this family. Except for I-70, maybe not as much, because we kind of go 64 instead of 70. But I've done this before. I mean, I moved here. But I missed a turn. I missed a turn, which isn't terrible. The terrible part is I did not realize I missed a turn for 70 miles. <laughs> 70. Jerome, you are an arrogant jerk. You think you're so good that you don't even realize you're on the wrong road for 70 miles. The reason I realized it is we get on the south side of Springfield, Illinois. So I went north. And there's these beautiful homes on this lake. And I thought, this is gorgeous. I don't remember seeing this before. <laughs> Outside of Effingham, Illinois. Well, it's not. It's Springfield. 
I thought, well, God has a purpose and a plan. I mean, like, I'd like to tell you that I was like, God has a purpose and a plan. We'll just roll with it. I'm better now than I used to be, but thanks to grace. But uh, it's a tough thing to be lost. But the thing is, I wasn't lost. I knew exactly where I was, but it wasn't where I'm supposed to be. What's worse, being lost or knowing that you're not lost, but you're not headed in the right direction? I was blinded by my own ability. I was blinded by my, my, what I thought I was good at, that I was, I was blinded by my, my ability to perform and to, to do well. So blinded, it took me 70 miles to see that I was heading in the wrong direction. I think sometimes we find ourselves blind by our own ability to achieve the things that we're good at, our talents, our skills, our ability to perform, to achieve, our own merit can blind us. If you recall, last week we, we talked about Jesus healing a man who had been lame for 38 years. He's laying by a pool with a bunch of other people. And Jesus walks in and asks him, do you want to get well? And he says, he says I can't. There's no one to pick me up. And he, he didn't even have an answer. He didn't even say yes or no. He just said, which is impossible. He was at the end of himself. And by being at the end of himself, the direction he was heading, his, his plan that was impossible opened the door for God to do what only God can do, for Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. Yes, God and Jesus, same thing, Trinity. Let's not get into that. But it opened the door when we finally come to the end of ourselves. We're going to go back to that story because it led to a conversation, which is where we are at, in our text today. But before I go any further, if you're not a believer, you're with us today, we want to say thank you. If you're not a Christian, if you're just checking out faith, we think it's great that you're here. I do believe that God has something for you. I'm not going to necessarily preach to you, but, but this applies to you as well, because we might find ourselves not lost. I mean, we use the word lost for people. It's a very christian word for people who are not Christians. Maybe you're not lost, but maybe you just don't like the direction you're headed. I trust that God has something for you today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 5. We left off at verse 18 last week. And as you turn, let me set up this, set this up for you. We've been going through the book of John. John writes specifically so people would know who Jesus is, that they would believe and have life in him. He gives this purpose statement there in John chapter 20. We looked at it almost every week. I've at least referenced it, that that's the purpose of this book. And it's important to know the purpose of this book as we read the text. He's writing not just a collection of random stories, but with a purpose. There is, this is a book. This is a literary work with an actual purpose and themes that develop. And we see a developing theme happening in John chapter 5. What, what previously had been a reservation or hesitation about Jesus now becomes opposition. They were questioning this Jesus guy, watching him from a distance, the religious leaders of his day, but now they are wanting to oppose him. Things are starting to escalate. You may recall that uh, the last time when Jesus heals that man on the Sabbath, he picks up his mat and begins to walk. And the religious leaders go up to him and say, hey, you, you're, you're doing what's unlawful. You're breaking the Sabbath because you're working. Because they interpreted, not, not, it's not the Old Testament, it's not the law that was given to Moses. Who this all leads back to, it's their development of it. They said, you're carrying your mat, that's work. And he goes, well, uh, Jesus made me do it. <laughs> they go to Jesus and say, you, you're practicing medicine, you're healing on the Sabbath, that's work. And Jesus' response is not to defend himself or to de-escalate the thing. He's like, oh yeah? Let me, let me make it better for you. 
my father's always working and so am I. And in that moment, they knew exactly what he meant. He's identifying himself with God. Boy, if, if breaking the Sabbath is a big deal, identifying yourself with God is a really big deal. There's, he's, not, he's not just breaking Sabbath. He's, he's being blasphemous, which is an, actually this whole idea of Jesus identifying with the Father is one of the great themes in the Gospel of John. John 10.30 says, I and the Father are one. We're going to get there. But that's repeated in one form or fashion throughout this book. So the Jewish leaders totally understood what Jesus was saying, and ultimately, as we know, it led to them killing him. Let's read John chapter 5, starting in verse 19. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself if he does only what he sees the Father doing, or he does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. In fact, the Father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you will truly be astonished. For just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to those he raises from the dead. Or, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. Don't take your picture, don't take your eyes off the paper while you're reading, because you'll do what I just did. In addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge, so that everyone will honor the Son, just as the Father, just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. Let me stop right there. We're going to keep working through this, but I want to show you this very first uh, verses 19 through 23 shows us that Jesus' authority that he has to break the Sabbath is based on his, the answer he actually gave them. It's because of his relationship with the Father. That's where his authority comes from. Verse 20 says that Jesus' authority to break the Sabbath is based on he and the Father indeed being one. Their relationship shows an, an alignment and they're, they're, they're equal, whether it's their equal nature, their aligned goals, and Jesus' will is subordinate to the Father's, but that's just because they're aligned. That what Jesus does is comes from the Father. It's, this is a really imperfect example, but let me, we all know that we kind of begin to reflect our parents a little bit, right? My daughter can look at me when something is said and smile because she knows what I'm thinking, which she'll never admit to you all because you'll judge me. But she knows in certain situations what I'm thinking about certain things. It's probably because we spend time with our kids. We're, we're influencing them. They're a little, my, really, my daughter looks like me, but my son, Hawk, really looks like me. Our baby pictures are incredible. And so, poor kid, he gets a whole lot of parenting from daddy. Like, I'm, I could be that, I try not to be that baseball dad. I totally can be. I have to sit out in the bleachers and shut my mouth or try to because I don't want to be that guy, but I am that guy who's giving him all the directions in the field. If there was a sign in my neighborhood when you drove down the road that said, slow children ahead, I'd take that down and be like, no, you're not. They are fast. You can't believe my children. I'm just saying, I'm that dad. So a couple years ago, they're playing Monopoly. My, my children and their cousins are playing Monopoly at a Christmas. And when someone would run out of money, they'd be like, here, just take some of my money. Here's a little loan. I like you. I'm like, and I walked in, I was like, guys, you were not playing Monopoly. Monopoly is about crushing the other people. That's why it's Monopoly. You are playing house using a board. We do not show mercy in this dojo. Sweep the leg. 
That's a Karate Kid reference, and thank you for laughing if you know that reference. So my son right now is a Monopoly villain. He is the worst guy to play Monopoly. He is so cutthroat, and I am so proud. The son reflects the father. Oh, that's actually not a really good admission, is it? I was talking about the son in Scripture reflects the father in Scripture. How about that? But Jesus says more. He goes, there's greater things than this healing. You're going to see these greater things, and you'll be astonished. So what are these greater things? Verses 21 and 23 says that the father, you know, who raises the dead, gives the same ability to the son, and he gives him the ability to judge. The same authority. His authority to, to give life, his authority to judge comes from the father. It comes from that relationship. And if you don't recognize the authority of the son, then you end up denying the authority of the father. Let's keep reading verse 24. I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their, for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. And I assure you that the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the God, the Son of God, and those who listen will live. The Father has life in himself, and he has granted that same life-giving power to his Son, and he has given him authority to judge everyone because he is the Son of Man. Don't be surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the, death in the, all the dead in their graves will, will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who have done good will, raise, will rise to experience eternal life, and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own. Let's look at verse 24, because 24, I think, is the, the real heart of this passage. Verse 24 aligns with John's purpose, that people would, would know who Jesus is. Jesus is answering the question for himself who he is, the whole purpose of John's book. Who is Jesus? He's telling you that you may have life if you believe. Now, I want you to notice the words that if you believe... Those who have who, who believed have and already have. You see those words? There's kind of a, uh, it, it's already taken place that, that there is a state of living and a state of death that take place now. He's not just talking about eternity. He's talking about present realities, not just eternal consequences. That those who cross this line from death to life do so how? Because they believe. The Greek here for the word has passed shows that this, this past action has this this present result, that's that new life today. There is new life in eternity, but there's new life today. It's something you can live in now and in eternity. Salvation is a past action that results in a present reality. You remember when we were in John chapter 3 a few months ago? Remember when I said, what color is the ink on John 3.16 in your Bibles? Remember that? Some of you said red. Some of you said black. I said, who said it? Some of you said Jesus. Some of you said John. It was kind of like, and I, and I kind of leaned towards it being John's words about Jesus. There's some differences there because it's not 100% clear, but this is 100% clear. This is Jesus saying, this is Jesus' commentary on Jesus. This is Jesus' word on himself. This is essentially Jesus' John 3.16 for sure. 
It's the gospel in a nutshell. Let me read 24 again. I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he sent his son, those who believe my message, that whoever believes in him should have everlasting life. You learned it the way I learned it. John 5, 24 needs to be highlighted, just like John 3, 16. If you keep reading in verse 25, he says, there is a time coming, oh, it's actually now, it's already here, that those who hear, not just audibly hear, but listen, receive, believe, really hear what he's saying, would have life. Listen, your attitude and how you answer the question and how you respond to the answer to your question, who is Jesus, really determines your destiny, both in this life and the next. There's life available now for the person who listens. That's what Jesus is claiming here. That's who Jesus says is true of him. Like Jesus is, remember, remember this started with the healing. And they said, who do you think you are? And he goes, I'll tell you who I am. He's laying out his resume right now. I am one with the Father. I have the authority of the Father. Then verses 26 through 27, he gives us the reasons why he could make such a claim that the Father has given him authority to give life and the Father has given him the authority to be a judge. Ironically, they're the ones who want to judge Jesus, but they don't have anything to stand on as judges. He is the one who's been granted authority to judge and he's judging them for their inability to see him. The religious leaders of the day. As judged, Jesus gives life to those who believe. Verses 28 through 29, he kind of switched shifts from their time is coming and it is now to there is a time coming. He begins to talk about a physical resurrection, a resurrection for the righteous and a resurrection for the wicked. But it's not just resurrection, it's resurrection followed by what? Judgment for good and evil. Now, you may object and be like, wait a minute, that's not the gospel message. He's not judging us based on our deeds, is he? No, he's not. He's judging us based on our standing. And our standing of good and evil is based on our standing with him. It's based on our belief about who Jesus is, whether we heard his word. See, we stand as, if you are a believer, you stand before the Lord in judgment, but it's not the judgment of the unbeliever. It's you, appear, you, you stand with Christ's righteousness. He lived a life we could not live. And so therefore, standing with Christ is, or standing with, the, with God, with the Father, is, is, is of Christ's righteousness. It's given to us. It's called imputed righteousness. We can't stand on our own. None of us can stand on our own. Everyone agree with that? If you could stand on your own, stand up. No, don't do that. We all agree with it here. But sometimes we walk out of these doors and we forget that fact really easily about ourselves and about others. Those who are believed are gifted Christ's righteousness. These are the things that take place in salvation. There is justification, being made right in the sight of God. That's a legal term. That's what we're talking about here. But there's also regeneration, which is being made new. It's giving a, being made, living a new life in Christ. There's reconciliation, which is a relational term, being reconciled with God. And then there's propitiation, that Christ has paid the penalty that we deserve for our sins. All of that takes place when you believe. Nothing that you earn. 
but it's what you've been given as a gift upon belief. So the message that I'd like for you to walk away with today, the one thing that I kind of boiled all this down to is this idea here. It's, there is a new life for those who believe. A gift from God you receive, not achieve. Sounds very similar to the last time I preached on John 3.16 because it's a very similar text. Then There is a new life for those who believe. A gift from God you receive and not achieve. Lord, forgive me for continuing to default to achievement. Let's read the last part of this text and we'll close it out. But listen, starting in verse 31, we see a shift. He's given the resume and now he's going to give the references. He said, here's who I am. Don't believe me? Ask somebody. Verse 31, if I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. Not saying that he's a liar, but you just wouldn't believe me. But someone else is also testifying about me, and I assure you that everything he says about me is true. In fact, you sent investigators to listen to John the Baptist and his testimony about me. It was true. Of course, I have no need of human witnesses, but I say these things so that you might be saved. Like, I can stand on my own, but I know for your sake you need, this, you need to hear this. John was like a burning and shining lamp, and you were excited for a while about his message. But I have a greater witness than John, my teachings and my miracles. The Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified about himself. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face. You do not have his message in your hearts because you do not believe in me. The one, the one he sent to you. Ironically, they don't believe in, the, in, in him because they don't believe the Father's word about him, but they don't believe the Father's word about him because they don't believe in him. It's kind of cyclical. Verse 41, we'll finish out this, this chapter. Your approval means nothing to me because I know that you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you in my Father's name and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe for you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from you, from the one who alone is God. Yet it isn't I who accuse you before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, in whom you put all your hopes. If you really believed Moses, then you would believe me because he wrote about me. And since you don't believe me, what he wrote about, how will you believe what I say? So here we have Jesus kind of giving a list of witnesses that witness to who he is. The, the, like I said, he gave, his, he gave his resume. Now he's giving references. The first one, John the Baptist. He said, you, you had John the Baptist. You went out and listened to him. You celebrated what he had to say. You're excited about something happening. And then all of a sudden, you rejected him when you realized that who he was delivering was me. And then the second witness was Jesus' works, his, his teaching, his miracles. Now, miracles should not be their basis for faith for sure. But when we see God work, and it's very true in the Bible over and over again, we see the example of he does these works to validate who he is, that when Jesus does those works, that it, it validates his words, his character, but they reject his words. There another witness would be the Father. Jesus points out that they couldn't hear the Father's testimony because they couldn't see past Jesus himself. And then finally, he appeals to scriptures, and you see he kind of develops that, talking about Moses. 
Jesus essentially says this. You are serious Bible students. You religious leaders, you scholars. You're ripping up the Old Testament. You're carefully trying to figure out everything so you can gain eternal life. But in all that work that talks about me, you can't see me. And all your religious merit and duty, you can't see me. They depended on themselves. They had no need for Jesus. It was that religious merit and that duty that really was what they were building their life on. Jesus is not beautiful, desirable. He's messing up their system. He's messing up their, because they're at the top of the system, by the way. So they want to discredit and dishonor and disgrace them. They are upset because Jesus is judging them and all their religious merit. You ever notice that Jesus gets really, really upset with the religious folks, right? Eugene Peterson, who's the translator of the Message Bible, writes it this way. The very same verses we just read. You have, your, you have your heads in the Bible constantly because you think you'll find eternal life in there, but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me, and, and here I am, standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive me. You're not willing to receive the life from me that you say that you want. I read those words, and I think to myself, are those words true of me in my Christian walk? Is this, me, is this about loving Jesus, the one in whom the Word of God is pointing, or is it me loving the Word of God because I'm at the top of the heap? Not because I'm the pastor, but because I'm pretty good at being a Christian. I'm better than some people. I feel good about myself. I'm not that bad probably earned some of it too. Right? Think about it. Do you read your Bible to get rid of your guilt or to earn heaven or because you love Jesus? Do you pray to rid yourself of guilt to get the check mark in to earn His good graces and His blessings or do you love Jesus? Do you serve to get rid of guilt or earn heaven because, or, or, or because you love Jesus? Do you share your faith because it's your religious duty and obligation? Or do you love Jesus and love those who need to hear the message of Jesus? Do you give to the church and to the kingdom because you're hoping that God owes you back? It's just right and fair which I've given you, Lord. Don't you owe me? Or because you love Jesus? Do you come into this room because it makes you feel better and reduces guilt or because you love Jesus? I'm not calling anyone out here. If I was, I have to call myself out. At times. You see, you can do all these things. Read your Bible, pray, serve, share your faith, give money, come to church. You can do all these things and still not love the Lord. The Jewish leaders 
proves that. They, they prove that with their life. They built a system on merit. They built a system on achieving. There is a new life for those who believe. It's a gift from God that you receive and not achieve. What does that mean for us in 2020 in Westfield, Indiana, or Noblesville or Carmel, I stand Sheridan? Got a Sheridan. Whoop, whoop, Sheridan. What does that mean for us? Well, if you're not a Christian, I, I promise that when I began this message that this message wasn't about you, but I'm not going back on that because this is the message that I just read was geared towards those of us who are Christians. But if you're not a Christian, I want to ask you, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you think he is based on what he says is true of him? I invite you. It's belief that crosses line. If you've walked in here with some baggage, some bad experiences in church, some real rule-keeping, ritual, earning, burden. That's not what Jesus came in with. That's the beautiful thing about grace. And we'll talk more about grace because Christians need to be reminded about grace. That's where I'm going. But can I just say, if you are not a Christian, there is a new life that's available to you, and it is a gift, not a religious and moral obligation, but a gift of Christ's life in you and through you. Paul says it this way, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus said, if anyone wants to keep their life, they have to lose it. If anyone wants to lose, you know, if you lose your life, you actually find it. If you try to keep your life, you lose it. That life is really found in surrendering to him, which we have a hard time because we want to sit on the throne of our hearts, even as people who believe in Jesus, we want to be in control, even when being in control of our own life isn't really working out. Now let me say my sights on those who are Christians in this room. Let me just tell you, there's one thing you need to do to respond to this idea that it's something that we receive and not achieve. I have two things for you. First of all, be gospel fluent, like I'm fluent in the language of the gospel, which means we have to reacquaint yourself. Maybe you need to reacquaint yourself with what grace means, but it actually means for most of us and all of us, we constantly have to reacquaint ourselves with what grace means. We have a tendency to start out with this gift of grace, yay, and slide back to religious merit. The longer we're in this thing, the better we're, we do at, at, at striving to please God, the better we think everyone else should do because I'm, I'm keeping up my end of the deal. Where's yours? We become judgmental. We don't reflect Christ. We become competitive. Comparison and judgment on people who need us to come alongside of them. If we think for a moment that, that grace is just the start of like, Jesus is like, here, I cleaned your whiteboard of sins now. It's your job to keep it clean. What a burden that life is. That was the first like 30 years of my life. Grace is not the beginning of the Christian walk. It is all the Christian walk. Being gospel fluent means that we live each day with a keen awareness that we are sinners saved by grace. In our absolute worst day, because of what Jesus has done, we are deeply loved. And on our absolute best day, we are desperately wicked in need of grace. There is a new life that's available, and it's a life not of, it's not a second chance. Okay, I'll give you a second chance to be better this time. It is a life of Christ through us. The change that takes place is because of his spirit in us. Perhaps we need to stop living for Christ 
I know that would get your attention. Perhaps we need to stop living for Christ so that Jesus can live through us. Don't go out here and say, my, my preacher said stop living for Christ. That's out of context. The second thing I'd, would be this, and if I could get the, the band to come up at this time. Don't just be gospel fluent, but champion it. Champion it with those in your workplace who are not Christians, those who have preconceived notions of what it means to be a Christian, what they think this thing is about, religious merit and earning it and being all those things that are not true of us, if we actually become gospel fluent, we can have an answer to those things. Those work conversations over lunch. I'm going to give you permission to do this, but do it with fear and trembling. That person who writes something on Facebook who needs their view of Christianity reframed, reframe it lovingly. This thing's about grace. I'm afraid when we think we need to achieve, it keeps people away. Because either we are really good at achieving, we become prideful, or we really are, we're really bad at achieving and we become defeated. And if we forget grace, if we're not gospel fluent, we don't know. And the good news really isn't that good. It prevents us from really achieving the destiny that God has for us because we're just trying to survive and make it. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Champion grace with those who have a misunderstanding of grace, whether they consider themselves a Christian or not. Even your Christian brother and sisters need to be reminded because they slip like we do towards religious merit. But somehow we find ourselves kicking those who are down. This is an opportunity to lift them up. One of the reasons I came to this church is because grace was an absolute theme. It was an absolute core value I have seen you and I've heard stories of you looking at one another in love building one another up and not tearing each other down because we're just reminding each other that we're all in need of grace thank you radiant, that I can raise my kids in this church they would know grace we're going to sing this song as a prayer that we're going to welcome some new members. Sing real quick, just the chorus.